0: Actual impact is difficult. It involves real change, and it involves, in some instances, taking real risk.
1: Purposely podcast, speaking with social entrepreneurs and charity founders and leaders, people who are making the world a better place. Here's your host, Mark Longbottom. Really, well, welcome to Purposely with Bill Murphy, founder of Purpose Capital. Bill is an American. He grew up in Boston, Massachusetts. He now calls New Zealand home. He's based on the Bay of Plenty of New Zealand's North Island. Purpose Capital is an impact investment fund whose mission is to drive social environmental change. Prior to launching his own fund, Bill spent 16 years helping startup entrepreneurs to thrive through an initiative called Enterprise Angels. He recently joined forces with the government, headed overseas to talk to and attract entrepreneurs to New Zealand. Really enjoyed my conversation with Bill. Don't forget whatever platform you're on whether you're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, whether you're on hit follow it makes a massive difference to me getting the message out there and helps me get really awesome guests. Enjoy the episode. Bill Murphy, a very warm welcome to Purpose Podcast. Thank you. You're the founder and head of Purpose Capital. What's its mission? What's its purpose? Sure. Our theory of change in the social change sector. So really it's
0: about demonstrating another way to make money work. So because we're finance people by background, looking to apply our skills and wealth to drive impact, environmental and social impact, really the sort of the core strategic reason for setting up Purpose Capital was to demonstrate that investment can be used to drive positive social and environmental change, as well as achieving financial return. Wonderful. and. How's it going? <laughs> it's going very well. We've made five investments now toward our target of eight for this first fund, and while think we started off a bit slowly and due to the the quality of the deal flow in the last
1: year that has that has picked up quite a bit. so it's so it's going well. And so it's four years old, founded in two thousand and nineteen by yourself.
0: That's right. So four years old in, in that, in 2019, I really started working on the concept, the structuring, the strategy for how I would go about raising the capital for what would be one of the very first impact funds in New Zealand. The fund itself uh, didn't achieve its first close until 2020. And, uh, and then we went on to raise capital uh since then so it's really been in operation
1: for two and a half going on three years and i love the name for obvious reasons because it kind of um very similar to the name of this podcast tell us about the the naming of the organization well it's funny there was um some of the colleagues that
0: we work with in the industry who, who aren't investors they are uh, environmental consultants And they were thinking of setting up a fund, and they wanted to change. They wanted to call it Purpose Capital, but I had I had to have a a conversation with them to say, "Hey guys, um, while we haven't formally gone out to the market yet with that name, we kind of already chose that quietly ourselves. So it's okay if we have that name." So
1: fortunately, that worked out, and um, and yeah, that was the name that we landed on, and headquartered in in Taronga in uh, in New Zealand, Aotearoa, which presents quite a unique. Prospects so you're sort of a uh, quite a way distance from the sort of financial district of if you like of of um, of the country but I guess it comes with its benefits too.
0: Well, interestingly Mark, what we've built here in Tauranga over the past 20 years is some people know about it but not everybody obviously is investment capital at every stage. So we have WNT Ventures which uh, which is uh, a Callahan uh, initiative Along with we private investors that invests in deep tech and commercializing technology coming out of universities and crown research institutes. Then we have Enterprise Angels, which I founded, which sort of is the next stage of investors and in early stage tech companies. And that's an organization that's invested over a hundred million, I'm sorry, over 60 million in a hundred companies. Then we have Purpose Capital, uh, private equity stage. Uh, impact fund, Orients Capital, private equity stage commercial fund, Keyside Holdings, $2.3 billion in assets, Craig's Investment Partners, the main uh, stock brokerage in New Zealand. So we've got the same capital provision as Auckland or Wellington, just maybe not the same uh, number of dollars. But, um, yeah, so it's a, it's a very healthy capital provision ecosystem here in, the, in New Zealand's fifth largest
1: city. yeah and you know based on your accent and and you have met before you're not from these parts are you so your life started in, in the states and i had i think from memory you talked about growing up in boston or massachusetts is that right
0: that's right yep so i'm your listeners that may have an ear for american accents would pick up pretty quickly that i'm from the east coast and those that have a really good ear might identify boston but the boston accent is um while it is quite resilient, it has taken it has been modified a bit over the years with all the places that I've lived and the fact that I've lived in New Zealand now for 30 years. So originally from Boston, but then at a uh, at a young age, at uh, 19, I uh, decided I had had a, enough of university at that point and hitchhiked across the country to San Francisco to ostensibly see if the summer of love was
1: still going. This was the mid-70s. <laughs> yeah. And... Looking back to your childhood, is there any hint that you would focus your career, like your real efforts on making a difference to people and planet? Like, was, this, was there a part of your upbringing that lays a sort of um, blueprint for today?
0: I wonder. Um, my, I am an archetype, for those of your listeners that know about <laughs> – United States archetypes. I'm an Irish Catholic uh, archetype from Boston. Boston, New York, Chicago have these Irish Catholic archetypes. Uh, My father was a policeman. My father's two brothers were both firemen. And that's what their generation was told uh, by their parents who immigrated from Ireland to the States. They were told you're gonna you're gonna have a big family obviously and you're gonna need a good steady safe job so you're gonna go into the civil service you're gonna go into the police or the fire and that's why when you see movies from New York or Boston it's you know it's always irish cops and everything well that's the reality so my brother became a policeman as well and you know you could you could say well that looked like it might be my destiny too but it never was going to be there's just no way So I started doing yoga and meditating, things like that when I was at university and became a vegetarian uh, while I was hitchhiking out to California. And obviously going to California was part of exploring, I guess exploring how to change hearts and minds of human beings in order to drive change. So as my mother recently said to me, you were always going to leave. And so I guess that was always in me.
1: And was that some form of sort of, intellectual curiosity but it's a curiosity about the world like were you a pretty deep thinker back then do you remember or yeah i, I would think I,
0: I would say i was yeah I've, I've always been that i've always been a relatively serious person and i think integrity's always been very important to me so even now you know we're going to talk about impact investing today but the last couple of years i've just continued to do my research and reading on what's actually happening in the world at this point and impact investing is a way of addressing social and environmental change which is much needed
1: but we need to go much further than that as well but possibly we'll get into that <laughs> yeah so you hit the west coast and you're doing yoga and you're, you, you're the, the Summer of Love is what you focused on. What was that like? What did you find in, on the West Coast and in California? That Do you remember back to that period?
0: I do. I can remember back there. Haight-Ashbury was still very cool and very genuine. Now it sort of looks like a theme park when I go back and, and visit. But in those days, it was still pretty uh, pretty pretty rocking and rolling. However, uh, the busiest place in Haight-Ashbury was the Free Medical Clinic because the uh, The hangover from the 60s had definitely set in and um, all the excesses that took place in the late 60s early 70s were coming home to roost so what was going on with me and, and probably a lot of other people my age at that point was seeing the failure of the the protest movements of the 60s to affect really affect change we did have some impact on the vietnam war but you know, Nixon had been elected and then we had Watergate. And so it just, some of us just felt as passionate as ever about driving change, but we just felt that we weren't going to be able to achieve that through purely political or protest means that we needed to, we needed to change hearts and minds in order to affect real change. So that was more my sort of attention.
1: Yeah. And, you know, One thing that strikes me is Americans don't necessarily need to leave the States. So, you know, these are are a whole lot of countries in in one. And a lot don't leave, but you did. How did New Zealand come up on your radar? So that was one of the other things I found
0: uh, in San Francisco was my eventual Kiwi wife. So, (laughs) So Rosemary and I met in the late 70s and were married in 1979. And I couldn't wait to go to New Zealand. At that time, I can remember going to the bank and pulling out would have been a very, very paltry sum of money in order to uh, take that to New Zealand. And no one in the bank had any idea where New Zealand was at all. And that always sort of sticks in my mind. At that point, it really was the other side of the world, the end of the world. And communication uh, channels and everything were, of course, very primitive compared to today. And I just loved the idea of coming down to New Zealand. And I also fell in love with New Zealand when I was here. It was just so different from the States, especially in those days. What were the big differences you've, you noticed when you arrived? New Zealand still um, really valued family time. It was a different pace of life. Everything closed at five o'clock. Things weren't open on the weekends. There was Late night shopping one day a week. So for those that were working nine to five and couldn't do their supermarket shopping, otherwise there was one night during the week when uh, the shops would stay open later. And the weekends were quiet. They were, they were for family. They were for New Zealanders to, to experience and, and enjoy this beautiful country. I love those aspects. I love the fact that I could walk out to, onto any beach and highly likely be the only person there. Yeah, and I I love the fact that (laughs) as I sit in in Britomart now with young New Zealanders, and I point to the Britomart building, which is the main train station in downtown Auckland, and I say to them, "You, you do realize what that building is? It was originally the general post office. And back in the day, in the early 80s, we used to line up at the general post office with our fax and hand our piece of paper to the man who would operate the fax machine and send your fax for you. Yeah, That's how, yeah, that's how primitive communication channels were back in those days.
1: And economically very controlled as well, wasn't it, New Zealand too? So- lot of trade restrictions like you talked about the sort of internal mechanisms a bit around closure times and restrictions. Um, but as a, as an American, did, is that possibly the bit that would drive you, drive you mad, like you, in terms of um, enterprise or making money or connected to markets? Yes, that part of it was kind of, how to put it,
0: almost oppressive. You had to apply to send money out of the country. So you'd have to go to the bank and fill out an application to send any foreign exchange, any any money out of New Zealand. And yeah, New Zealand was very sleepy and, and was going to have to change. And of course, that change did eventually come in a very wrenching way in later 80s. So in 1990, we decided to leave New Zealand after the 87, 88, 89 period, which was Roganomics and was the wrenching of the New Zealand economy to be completely open to the rest of the world uh, from being a very, very protected economy. So that was a very difficult time with interest rates over 20% for New Zealand business people, and I abandoned ship at that point back to the States.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but New Zealand didn't get out of your skin? Like you, Your, your return, was that always going to be a return, or you weren't sure at that point?
0: It always was going to be a return, yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I, I love New Zealand, and when we lived in London, that's when I realised that this was now home. And so going back to the States at that time was just a, a temporary measure. Uh, we were always going to come, come back.
1: Mm. From what I could tell, someone who has always had a passion for enterprise, supporting people to make a living, create value, have an impact – did you decide that that was going to be your play in New Zealand that you were going to, you know, like, cause it, this stuff relatively standard in the States and people kind of investing and finding investors, not difficult people willing to take the risk that kind of, New Zealand's quite a conservative, has been quite a conservative culture. Did you feel like you were sort of from a different planet sometimes in terms of that investment beliefs? Uh, Yes. (laughs) And I have over the years.
0: So that was when I started Enterprise Angels, Angel Investing Group. That was because I realized that entrepreneurs had nowhere to go in New Zealand. All I could do was give them the the phone number of the local rich guy. There was no ecosystem of investors that had been, had been, um, brought forward angel investors, people willing to invest in early stage companies. So I just couldn't believe that we didn't have that here, and I, and I never thought that we wouldn't. And so Enterprise Angels developed out of that. And Purpose Capital, similarly, uh, five years ago, looking around, how is it possible that we didn't have any impact investing happening in New Zealand? So I love a challenge, I love starting things, and I love making a difference, and, um, and so that challenge was there to do that. But yes, it is quite frustrating. Because you're absolutely right, Mark. You know, there's the there's the number eight wire myth mythology about New Zealanders. There's the clean green mythology. And we haven't always earned those mythologies. Walking the talk, actually taking the risks, putting the wealth into making a difference um, is something that's still a, a big challenge here in New Zealand.
1: Mm. And I think what's relatively new for New Zealand compared to other parts of the globe is this idea that you can make aspire to make profit and make a difference you know, to planet and people. That feels like it's arrived at New Zealand relatively late. Do you think that's part of the reason why the industry's sort of undercooked? Yes,
0: sure, that would be. And I think I think the reason it's arrived late to New Zealand is, is twofold. One is that conservatism and the other is just that bit of sleepiness that we continue to have here, or maybe sleepiness or maybe self-contentment. And in a way that's a positive in that New Zealanders love and enjoy their country and their way of life. But in another way, it can really it can really slow down uh, progress
1: sometimes. So yeah, that's a, an ongoing challenge for sure. I think New Zealand's always been an outwardly looking country, hasn't it? So uh, I guess on... It was always going to be the case that it would, it would learn and develop and continue. So certainly, a lot of people, as a rite of passage, would would head, over, head overseas. And your wife clearly did that and met you, and then brought you home. <laughs> what, what in terms of um, purpose capital was that? Something that you had been envisaging for quite a long time. Like, did you have that up your sleeve?
0: Making a difference has always been there for me, and. Enterprise Angels was a way for me to do that. And I was inspired to do that for, you know, some years. But once I felt like that job was done, I was looking around for my next uh, challenge and and was really excited, really wanting to make a bigger capital D difference, you know, helping to develop the investment for tech tech startups largely, it's, of course, an important economic step for New Zealand. And I was really pleased to be able to be part of that. But I was really feeling like we need to make bigger changes than just that. And I certainly have always been interested in making bigger and deeper changes. And therefore, that was, I guess, always going to be my next step was, would would be to use my experience, my expertise, my contacts to try to find a way to drive change in the finance sector. And, and impact
1: investing. Mm. And one of the projects that I've heard about is in Apotiki. Tell us a bit about that initiative and your role in that. And I'm thinking around the um, the muscle enterprise. Sure. So Whakatoia M-
0: Muscles Apotiki Limited is a, a muscle processing factory, which we've built in Apotiki with uh, investment funds uh, that have been raised. And it's also a deep water mussel aquaculture farm that sits uh, between six and eight kilometers off the shore of Apodiki, so right out in the open ocean. It's 3,800 hectares of uh, ocean space, which is consented for aquaculture. So we have the deep water aquaculture mussel growing out in the open ocean. And then we've built a uh, $40 million mussel processing factory In Apodiki, which is, by some measures, New Zealand's second most deprived town, it is—it has all of the statistics that you would expect to find uh, in a town like that. And our goal—and by our, I mean our—because it wasn't just us as impact investors that was pushing the impact potential of this of this investment; it was the whole town of Apodiki. All the other shareholders, and of course, especially Whakatoia iwi themselves. Everybody's been rowing the boat in the same direction, which has essentially been pioneering deep water aquaculture in New Zealand, which is the future of aquaculture because of its, uh, if it's zero environmental impact, um, and also creating, uh, maximizing the employment, uh, in the township of Apodaki itself and that was the and and we do that through the the factory so we're now employing 190 people in Apodiki where um, uh, the, many of
1: those people were not employed uh, prior uh, prior to the factory being built and breathe new life into that area and people not having to leave to stay employed like they don't they would typically head off to Auckland or Wellington to get a job that's right
0: and also uh you know the great desire of and iwi to bring their people have employment so they could bring their people back home because, well, probably 90, 95% of their people uh, live outside the area. So all of that. And also the factory has the capacity well beyond the current mussel farm, which we own. And so we do currently uh, process mussels from around the country, but it's also been set up to enable the processing of all the other aquaculture um that's being planned for the Eastern Bear planning, which, uh, which is as much as uh, 20,000
1: hectares, I believe, um, is, is in planning. So, yeah. And a joint venture between IWI, you guys, and, and others? Yes,
0: and the Crown. I, I, ha- I have to give the Crown some, uh, some credit here for sure. So through the Provincial Growth Fund, when that was still operating, the Provincial Growth Fund, or now Crown Holdings, are the largest shareholder in Fakatoria Muscles at 33%. That shareholding is held in trust uh, for Fakatoya iwi until they settle and will be transferred to Fakatoya iwi as part of the settlement, which along with Fakatoya iwi's current 10% shareholding will make them a 43% shareholder in this venture, which is what? We all want. They've really held the vision for decades, just didn't have the money or in some instances the skills to be able to pull all of this together. And uh, so they certainly deserve that level of shareholding uh, going forward. So we're we're quite happy about
1: that. And just listen to what you're saying there. Ownership is quite a crucial part of this, isn't it? So to get the benefit, to have the long-term, and I'm talking about really long-term impact, being... Having a skin in the game, being a, a part owner in any type of investment, yeah, you know, appears crucial to me.
0: Yeah, it's a really, really good point, Mark. And when I put up at a conference I recently spoke at at Auckland, I put up the four pillars of impact investing. I added a fifth, which was not mission alignment, but mission uh, cementing the mission in. There's a better word for it, and it'll probably come to me. So in other words, from right from the get-go, putting in place terms, conditions expectations that enable the mission of the venture to be held uh, in the company, no matter what the future might bring in terms of other investors, et cetera. Mission lock, that's the word. And of course, that's that's a challenging thing to do in a world where shareholders, where the law is set up giving shareholders all the rights and all control, but it is possible to do that through various means. So- um, is a way of keeping that mission lock in there because of course they are very environmentally aware and of course they are um, very socially conscious in terms of particularly
1: employment for their own people yeah and because impact investing is a real spectrum isn't it so you and it depends on the lens of the particular investor so someone turns up absolutely has to have a return Positive financial return, but they're also interested in making a difference to the world, to the you know to the planet people. Others will will see impact investing. It might be sort of um, impact first and and they would like a return or th- they'd like some money back. But you operate in that space where you know a monetary return, a financial return, is an imperative alongside purpose and impact.
0: That's right. I'd like to think that anyone who calls themselves an impact investment fund or impact investors, would strongly adhere to those pillars I mentioned before, additionality, measurement, financial return. There's another one which will come to me, as well as my mission lock one. I would hope that they would strongly adhere to those, oh, um, a measurement, and would use best practice uh, measurement and reporting to, with as much robustness as they, as they, use for financial return reporting and measurement. Mm. So whether, those, whether that impact fund is an impact-first fund, so in other words, for your listeners, that would mean a fund that would potentially accept a concessionary financial return, or whether that fund is like ours, an impact and financial return fund, where our aim is risk-adjusted market rate of return uh, for the financial investment alongside uh, the impact uh, that, we tr- that we're trying to generate. So in any case, I would hope that they were, uh, people would adhere to those. Impact is getting greenwashed, just like ESG sustainability has been greenwashed. So that'll continue to happen, but players in the space who are serious, I would hope to would uh, adhere to those principles.
1: Yeah, and greenwashing—we're we're meaning really, or sort of impact washing, if you like—is because it doesn't do what it, it says on the tin. Necessary, it doesn't. It talks about impact, but actually doesn't deliver that necessarily. And these, you know, these examples out there.
0: Greenwashing happens again. At this conference, I spoke to recently. ESG got a real hammering. There's been some research that's come out recently, which has really cast a very sharply critical light on what's actually being achieved through. Corporations that describe themselves as adhering to environmental, social and governance principles. And the research shows not much. And the reason why greenwashing happens there and greenwashing happens, happens in impact investment is because actual impact is difficult. It involves real change and it involves in some instances taking real risk. And most of us are trying to
1: avoid that. So that's why greenwashing happens. Yeah. And changing tact for a little bit. And just, you talked before about your personal you know, love for integrity. Do you have like a North Star? Do you have something that kind of guides you in your work, in your life that you fall back on? Like, do you have a sort of a, a discipline or a, a thesis or um, ethos? Sorry. Do you have something like that?
0: I do. Yeah. So, I have been a a meditator for, oh, let's see, a long time, (laughs) over 40 years, let's say. And so that's really my, that's really my, my rock. And I guess in the early stages of meditation, you're just trying to sit still and figure out what it means to quote unquote quiet your mind. But as your meditation develops, you can get to a place where you have a deep conviction about the inherent goodness uh, of human beings and our connection to something which is much greater than us. And, and I try to operate, I try to do my making a difference work in the world from that place. I feel that that's the change that we need to go through. That's what I meant before by change of hearts and minds. In order to enable us to make the kinds of Radical changes in many instances to the economic system that we have
1: and the social justice issues that we have. So, so
0: for me, it comes from that place, yeah.
1: Just on one of the topics I know you've had some exposure to, which is that I just really want to explore this one, one topic, if, if that's okay, around degrowth. This changing tax from what we've been on for the last probably five decades or more around constant growth, but um, love to get your thoughts on degrowth, which is a really new concept to me. But and I'd you know love it love it explained if you could give it a go.
0: Sure. So as I mentioned before, being involved in impact investing and and just reading and researching to ensure that we're doing that as as best uh, as we possibly can that reading and research will will take you beyond impact investing if any of us look at the facts with open eyes uh, around social issues and also around the environment you are led to really critically examining and thinking through our current economic system and various other things like that so that just happened for me as i just kept on pursuing what would potential solutions be to help us avoid the worst outcomes from the climate crisis and one of those that i came across was degrowth the name degrowth is something i love and many people hate because it's viewed as a negative term but the really great thing about the term degrowth is nobody's ever going to greenwash that <laughs> sustainability is just wide open for you know throwing green paint over and esg and everything else but degrowth really sticks in people's throat and it makes the mind stop for business investment and economic people like what the heck would anything other than growth be Uh, (laughs) it just it just stops the mind i call it a zen koan so for that reason alone i just i think the term itself is great but of course it goes much deeper than just a name
1: yeah not always aspiring to um, use more resource to make more money to maybe protect and maybe enjoy. (laughs) And um, it's, yeah, it it would be quite a commitment to someone, a business, a person to commit to degrowth. It would definitely not be, like you say, greenwashed. No. In terms of your other elements of of your work, one thing that jumped out at me was um, you've been a member of CARE which is is sort of taking it's a care as a, a, in my mind as a as a representative, a collective of people who are you know really putting New Zealand's best foot forward internationally. From someone who like myself, who has been away from New Zealand for a very long time, care represented a safe place for me, an exciting place for me, around um, you know Kiwis abroad. You've recently been back to to, uh, the States, haven't you, representing New Zealand um, and doing so with the government? Tell us a bit about that journey.
0: Sure. So I get back to the States every six months. I still have a lot of family back there, including my 91-year-old mother. And as part of this trip, I was contacted by the local economic development agency and New Zealand Trade and Enterprise, asking if I would help to support uh, events all in San Francisco and LA, familiarizing US migrants, people considering immigrating to New Zealand, familiarizing them with the new immigration policy, which is called the active investor uh, policy, which very simply provides wealthy uh wealthy individuals the opportunity to migrate to New Zealand by instead of what they were doing historically which was simply being able to take their wealth put it into one of the banks here in bonds and then come into the country this new policy requires them to either invest in new zealand businesses new zealand funds or philanthropy or the listed market in new zealand but it, it utilizes their expertise in their money in a way which new zealand trade enterprise hopes will be a real benefit for New Zealand economically. So in that sense, it, I think it's a much better policy than what we had previously. So I was had the opportunity along with a, a couple of others to present to potential migrants in LA and San Francisco. And they were a pre-qualified group that have al- already been working with the immigration service for some time. Pretty much all of them in planning to move to New Zealand and some people with some tremendous uh, expertise Particularly, I uh, noted in the San Francisco area, of course, with uh, with tech. So, uh, yeah, we're all hopeful that it'll be a policy that will be a real benefit for New Zealand.
1: Yeah, and and it must be great to tell your story and your you know your hometown, if you like your your country, and be yeah, be an inspiration, right? So you've walked that journey, and just to share your passion for New Zealand, but in in the states.
0: Yeah, definitely. I I, I always. I always tell Americans, you know, if you want to talk to somebody who's, you know, who's made the, made the move and has lived here for quite a long time, you know, I'm more than happy to, to talk to you. Cause one thing is, uh, you know, making an investment decision and coming into New Zealand, but there's, that's only sort of the tip of the iceberg. There's all the other issues like schooling and, and, and your partner and what a New Zealand is really like to live with and all those kinds of things. So,
1: yeah. Mm. And as we look towards wrapping up, does legacy play a motivating part in your psyche? Like what follows you, what you've done and what you'll leave behind? Does that play a part?
0: Let's see. One of the things that um, that, I love, that I recognized very, very early on in New Zealand was, oh my God, I could make a difference in this country and actually be able to see it. You can make a difference in New Zealand and actually shift the country a little bit, whereas you know, in the United States, that's that's just simply impossible. It is just so huge. And that has always been really exciting to me. So I guess that's true in terms of legacy. I'm at a stage now where I'm 68. I still have plenty of energy and huge desire to make a difference. But I also recognize that as I raise capital for funds that are typically 10-year funds, People will say, we're really glad you're here now, but will you be here in 10 years? So I'm currently in the process, as I, as I raise our second fund, of finding uh, a young person 40s, in their 40s or early 50s who would be able to step into my shoes and drive
1: this actively on a day-to-day basis, and I'll, I'll step more into a, into a government's role. Wonderful. So if there's someone out there listening, how do they get hold of you?
0: Well, our website's easy to find, so that's uh, PurposeCapital.co.nz. And uh, yeah, just reach out through the website. If you want to email me directly, it's simply Bill at PurposeCapital.co.nz. Bill
1: Murphy, absolute pleasure to have you on Purposely. Thank you very much, Mark. Really appreciate the opportunity. Thanks for listening to Purposely Podcast. Please subscribe and leave a review. I hope you like what you're hearing, because I sure do.